For everyone listening, just a quick note before the episode starts. First of all, welcome back to Queers on Film. We have a couple changes that we'd like to let you know about. So first of all, I know I went by Cat before. I still go by Cat, but I'm going to mostly be going by Felix on the show from now on. My pronouns are still they, them, or really and truly any and all pronouns. But even cooler than that, you know, before I got to talk to everyone by myself, and that was cool and all, but do you know what's a lot more fun than that? Talking about queer movies with friends. So I have two co-hosts now that'll be rotating on episodes, and they are here to introduce themselves. So you you know one of the names, uh, you've heard me say it in the episode, because the creator of our beautiful icon is here as a co-host, Aaron. Hello. Hi, I'm Aaron, and my pronouns are he, they. Do you have a favorite queer film? I should have prepped you for this. I just thought of oh, it. Oh, gosh. Um, My favorite queer film, I would have to say probably not one that is inherently queer, but one that was important in my queer journey would definitely be The Little Mermaid. I feel like that's a lot of people's answer. That's also, that's my put-on-the-spot answer. That's amazing. We also have Oscar. Hi, I'm Oscar. My pronouns are he, him. Uh, and do you have a favorite queer film? Roast me for this, but it's Pitch Black. It's <laughs> the <laughs> it's the um, Chronicles of Riddick movie with Vin Diesel in it. Oh, hell yeah. You I know, have a lot of opinions on it. I don't. I'm trying to think about what my favorite one is, and I feel like there's probably like a really obvious one i mean other than maybe like honestly a single man which i talk about all the time but Uh. aaron's answer inspired me to think about like well what was like the most important one to my queer journey and it has to be hercules like nothing made me gayer than meg so (laughs) that's why we're here so thanks so much for joining us we're gonna get into the episode now but we will be releasing episodes bi-weekly And we're so excited to be relaunching, so thanks for listening. Queers on Film, a podcast where a different guest each week picks their favorite queer film of choice and we discuss it. Uh, For the sake of this podcast, a film does not have to be explicitly queer as long as it fulfills one or more of the following criteria. Either has to have one or more queer characters, can be viewed through a queer lens, or has to be particularly relevant to the guest's queer journey or experience. Uh, I am Felix Kingsley and I use the pronouns they, them. And I have uh, co-host Aaron with me. Hi, I'm Aaron Longoria. My pronouns are he, they. And I have my very best friend, my uh, sibling, my darling one, uh, Ken, on today with us. Hi, I'm Ken. She, him pronouns. 
Yeah, you get to fucking announce your new pronouns on here. How does that feel? I know. I'm so excited. It feels amazing to, like, say it out loud. It's one thing to say it out loud on the internet, and then saying it out loud with a voice is entirely different. It feels great. Well, Ken is one of my favorite people, which is uh, perfectly uh, great. I couldn't think of the right word. didn't come to me. Um, I'm just going to say it again because I can edit it out. Um, <laughs> Ken is one of my all-time favorite people, which is particularly astute because the film that Ken wanted to discuss is the favorite. Oh, baby, that was perfect. I love you so much. Look at you go. Oh, thanks. Um, so, Ken, why did you choose this film? Yeah, okay, so, the reason I chose this film, I mean, I, I have, like, two or three of them. Um, so, first off, I just, I love, like, gaudy historical drama. It's, it's a great genre. Um, I just, I love, you know, messy bitches. Uh, the second yeah, reason- and you're a history nerd. Like, don't you have a degree in it or something? <laughs> Uh, I would have if I didn't drop out. So, yes. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> eh, whatever. You have enough of one. Exactly. Um, I've got enough of a degree in my brain, let's just say. Um, the second reason is, uh, so this one is a serious reason. Uh, this movie kind of brought up, like, a lot of feelings I have and had struggled with about my own sexuality. Uh, there's one facet in particular regarding Abigail, one of the characters that struck me in a weird way that I really didn't expect. Um, and honestly, it may not make a ton of sense, uh, but it was something that hit a really sensitive spot that I have regarding my sexuality. And I just wanted to like explore that and see if that makes any sense at all, basically. The, the other reason I have is... Uh, like I told you, Felix, uh, this movie is like the perfect opportunity for me to rope in one of my favorite subjects, which is how we talk about queerness when we talk about history. Yes, I know. I was thinking about you when I was reading. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about you in general because you chose the movie, but I was also just like, even if you hadn't chosen the movie, I would have been thinking about you because I know that's a conversation that you and I have had a lot oh, yeah. about how like historians have really like dismissed uh, queerness in history and like kind of written it off and like how difficult it is to then go back and kind of parse out a, a counter narrative to like the only one we've ever been presented absolutely um and like re-examine historical figures or moments and kind of uh, reassess what that actually could have been and you know we'll never really know the answers but like there's certainly different readings than uh than the ones historians have created because of course people rewrite history all the time and that is what becomes uh the narrative to us so yeah exactly that is one of my favorite topics to talk about i love exploring that and just trying to you know give a different perspective on you know history which is something that should be incredibly varied in you know people studying it and its interpretations but you know inevitably it's headed by mostly cis white dudes so it's a very narrow perspective most of the time um i do have one last reason uh why i picked this movie I haven't had anyone to talk about this movie with. Like, I really, <laughs> I really enjoyed this movie. I, I wouldn't say it's like entirely a, a favorite <laughs> of mine. Uh, but I thank you. Uh, I just really want to talk to some other queer people about this film because I've been sitting on like some complicated feelings for like two years now, uh, and I'm just really excited to see some other people's perspectives. Honestly, so yeah, those are all the reasons that I chose this film. There were many. Did you watch this when it first came out? 
or not too long after I remember watching it in my back when I had an apartment it was probably early 2019 so yeah I think it came out 2018 it wasn't too long after I I think that's right okay yeah well I'm gonna try to whip through kind of as quickly as I can a summary of the film because there's kind of a lot going on but at the same time it's really not a lot because it's basically just about three women all trying to fuck their way to the top. Well, not really, just two of them. But uh, anyway, so The Favorite is a film by uh, director Yorgos Lanthimos, who you may know from such movies as The Killing of a Sacred Deer and uh, The Lobster, uh, and written by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara, uh, which uh, originally written by Deborah Davis like 20 years before the film actually got made. And Tony McNamara and uh, the director basically went through and did their own write of it. Um, so it's set in Britain during the War of the Spanish Secession. The film centers around the stories of three women, Queen Anne, Sarah Churchill, who's referred to in the film as Lady Marlborough, uh, or just Sarah, and Abigail, uh, soon to be Abigail Masham. Sarah is a lifelong friend and favorite of Queen Anne. She attends to her needs and also sways her politically uh, with an iron fist. Uh, pushing Queen Anne to continue the the war and generally to favor the Whigs. Uh, Anne is extremely dependent on Sarah, who is, you know, seemingly pretty loyal, but also often cruel to Anne. Uh, shown to us early on in her refusal to pet the little ones, referring to 17 pet rabbits that we later come to learn represent the 17 uh, miscarriages and babies that Queen Anne has lost. Uh, soon, Sarah's cousin, Abigail, uh, ha who has fallen into a life of poverty due to her father's gambling, asks Sarah for a job in the castle. She starts off as a chambermaid, but after assisting Queen Anne by finding herbs for to treat her gout, she quickly rises through the ranks and works directly under Sarah. Abigail's approached by Harley, leader of the Tories, to spy on Sarah and Queen Anne for him, which she refuses, uh, saying that she's morally opposed and she won't betray their trust. Abigail soon discovers that Sarah and Queen Anne are having a sexual relationship when she accidentally sees them doing it, and it's not long after that that Abigail sees her own opportunity to rise through the ranks and regain her status as a noble. She ingratiates herself with Queen Anne and soon begins a sexual relationship with her herself. Sarah, who's busy with the war efforts, doesn't really notice until it's too late. She tries to get the Queen to send her away, accusing her of theft, which Abigail attacks herself and convinces the queen that something else had happened and uh the queen refuses to send her away saying that she likes when abigail sticks her tongue in her <laughs> uh at this point we see that abigail initially seen uh, and presented to us as a very sweet person is just as conniving as sarah she poisons sarah who as a result falls off her horse which she's riding and mutilates her face she's taken in at a brothel and while she recovers abigail back at back with queen anne ends up allying with Harley in exchange for his help with getting Queen Anne to allow Abigail to marry Masham, a man who Abigail has been toying around with, uh, but who's also a noble, which allows Abigail to regain her status. Sarah eventually comes back, her face disfigured from the fall. Abigail attempts to create a truce, but is slapped in the face in response by Sarah. Sarah then threatens Queen Anne, saying she needs to do some political shit, and also, of course, send Abigail away. Uh, she threatens her uh, with blackmail, uh, saying that she would show Jonathan Swift the letters that Queen Anne had written her, exposing her. Queen Anne, furious, sends Sarah out of court 
and Abigail takes over her position. Uh, Abigail living the fucking high life at this point, but Sarah is convinced to write a letter to Queen Anne, which she finds out about, and Abigail, though, intercepts the mail and prevents it from getting to Queen Anne. She also pretend or makes up a lie about Sarah having embezzled funds, uh, which Queen Anne initially dismisses. Abigail realizes she pretty much fucked up, but because Queen Anne never gets this letter, she ends up petulantly, uh, what's the word? It's not banning. It's like, uh, well, it is banning. Exile. Exile. Yeah, she like exiles uh, Sarah from England. And then it kind of cuts to uh, Abigail, who's now just like living like a debaucherous life uh, and still serving Queen Anne, clearly having things that she won. And it ends with a a scene where she, where Abigail steps on one of the rabbits. Queen Anne kind of realizes what's happening, becomes upset, uh, forces Abigail to come rub her legs as she has many times, which previously had mostly been like something that turned into something either like intimate or sexual, but it is now uh, harsh and punishing. She grabs onto Abigail's hair, forcing her into some listed position both of them looking distraught and then it uh we get a scene that is the image of abigail distraught on the ground queen anne distraught standing over her and the bunnies uh all scurrying around and the film ends so that's a lot well that's good that was basically it you got it <laughs> nothing else you got all of them that was the I, film i kind of just took most of the men out of the summary <laughs> that's literally what they did with the movie wait there's men in this movie yeah <laughs> there are and like uh chris thought my partner thought i uh, he did not agree with this but i have to say when nicholas holt who plays harley first shows up i was like why do i find him kind of hot here like, no definitely agree agreed yep Okay, thank you. See, Chris is a little <laughs> bad taste. We all have good taste. We can sin together. He looks good. So yeah, so first of all, I think I should just make a quick reference to the cast. So Sarah is played by uh, Rachel Weiss. Uh, Abigail is played by Emma Stone. Anne is played by Olivia Coleman. My girl. And then the only other one who really matters is that Harley is played by Nicholas Holt. There are other people you, you might recognize in this film, um, but... Let's be real. Like who cares? Yeah, that is definitely the main cast of characters. You, you, you all wanted to talk about Rachel Weisz before we started recording, (laughs) so I feel like I should allow you to do that. Oh, what? I'm sorry. I'm just reading the original casting for the favorite, and like I guess in 2015 when it was originally going to be Emma Stone, Olivia Coleman, and Kate Winslet. Whoa. What? I don't know if I can see that. I love Kate Winslet, but man, why it's just like, I mean, have you seen her jawline? I would see her more as Abigail. Yeah. If yeah, exactly. Well, she's too old for Abigail, but yeah, that's definitely more in her kind of typecast. I think we ended up with the better choice. Definitely. I will say no offense to Kate Winslet, who is a, a wonderful person, uh, or I don't know about a person, but she's a wonderful actress. Uh, she might sh- be shitty as a person. I, I truly don't know anything about her. But yeah, that's definitely a different... Apparently after Winslet left, Lantham was offered the role to Kate Blanchett. <gasps> Ooh, he's going through that the big so ones. Good. Oh, damn. <laughs> now that's a jawline. That would have been amazing. 
I still feel like Rachel Weisz is a better choice there. I feel like... I think because we have the proof behind it, like the proof behind Rachel Weisz being good, but I feel like if I were just presented with Keith Blanchett and Rachel Weisz, I would have been like, damn. Yeah. Tough choice. I feel like Kate Blanchett is a little too, like, she's not messy enough. I don't know. Like, she's very grand and regal. And I think that would definitely lend to the role. But also, like, I guess she just wouldn't seem as gritty. I love that you said messy because, as I referenced before we started recording, I took exactly six notes, uh, six sentences of notes uh, for this movie. Oh, yeah. Do you want to read them? Uh, yeah. And this is the perfect way to start. So, uh, note number one. Uh, this is just a super trio of messy bitches. That is real. Note number two. Uh, how about that duck race at the beginning? I Question wrote mark? about how that's like in Yakuza 5. Oh my god, is it really? They Yeah, they race like chickens in similar looking courses. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, my third note is Abigail is the epitome of girl boss gaslight gatekeep. God, that's extremely real. <laughs> The only nudity is exactly one of Emma Stone's nipples. That's a spoiler. I should have prefaced that. Uh, Sarah is one of those mean lesbians I'm always hearing about (laughs) on the internet. She's the top who posts selfies with semi-cringe captions like, I'm looking for a bottom to step on. Any takers? (laughs) And my final note is the excessive use of fisheye lens is pointless and fun. Those are the entire notes I made about the, the intricacies of the movie. Honestly... I wrote very few notes as well, which is unusual for both of us, but my notes are, like, yes, it is similar. Like, I'm not gonna read them all, but I wrote, like, the camera angles and shots are very peculiar. Uh, I wrote, I honestly think Nicholas Holt looks hot here. I wrote, I love Abigail as a dom. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, just, like, similar stuff. Yeah, I, so I'm not normally, a I'm not like a Rachel Weisz bisexual, like most people are. Like, I I don't know, I've never been like a huge fan. I don't like dislike her or anything, but I've never been like a huge fan. But she fucking whipped ass in this movie. Like, they all did. She did so good. I wanted to see this movie when it came out, and then I never saw it. And then I got nominated like a fuck ton. And I... I feel like I had a little bit of that, like, I don't know, is it really that good? Uh, Because I always feel that way when I haven't seen a movie and it gets nominated a lot. (laughs) Uh, But it was, I, Mm -hmm. I, the acting was amazing all around. Uh, They brought a lot of complexity to these roles. And uh, the, I don't know how I feel about the movie overall. Like, I liked it. My partner commented about it he didn't rewatch it with he'd seen it before he didn't rewatch it with me like he might have normally but he said you know i feel like i was more intrigued by the film than i liked it and i feel kind of similarly to that like i do too actually and that's not to diminish it's not to diminish the film it's not even to diminish my feelings about it to say i'm more intrigued than i enjoyed it it's just it's a peculiar film you know i mean not for this director i suppose it's his kind of most mainstream film to my understanding i've not seen his other films but but yeah it's a it's a peculiar gay history film it's a, it's the all about eve type of type of story you know mm-hmm. well and i have to tell you the reason i even wanted to watch it in the first place is because i saw that olivia coleman won 
Best Actress, and I fucking love her. She's I, so good I binged in this. all of Peep mm. Show uh, with my boyfriend, like when we were first dating. I love that show. I love her in it because I, she becomes an amazingly messy bitch by the end of it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a that made me a fan, and I saw that she was, you know, in like a really prestigious. She won a prestigious award. She was in this really interesting movie that I would have been interested in, anyways. And finally, I was like, you know what? I want to see what Olivia Coleman's doing here. And it turns out she's doing like one of the best things I've ever seen. Wouldn't you know it? Who'd have thunk? She's really amazing in it. Yeah, so she was amazing in it. She was such like she brought so much to this. <laughs> to this role but i guess i want to the main kind of things i was thinking about during it and then the main things i was kind of thinking about afterwards were a little different so during the movie i was thinking a lot i just felt like the sexual politics of the movie in terms of like sex as like currency or Mm -hmm. as like a commodity yeah yeah like commodity more so like we early on get a story from Abigail that she tells kind of offhand almost. Not offhand, I guess. We don't see the bulk of the conversation. But she tells a story about her father having put her up as collateral in a bet, which he lost. So then she was given sexually to some man, some grown man when she was 15, I think. And how she went along with it for her father's sake. And then that kind of foreshadowing what she does later on with using sex with Queen Anne for her own ends to become, to regain status and and power in that way. But then also at the end of the film, it's not, I guess, a sexual scene, but her rubbing Queen Anne's legs, which had previously been a, a sexual thing, like when they first ha- had sex, it was her ask Queen Anne asking her to rub her legs and then engaging sexually with her. And then at this end scene, it's her rubbing her legs, but then Queen Anne is, like, holding her down, standing above her, being dominant for the first time that we really see her be dominant, really, in the film, and holding her down into, like, a subjugated position. Uh, so I was thinking a lot about that element of it, but then afterwards, I was really focused on reading about the actual history and, like, the how much of the queerness was real, how much of it was made up, how much of it was just up for interpretation, which really, it turns out, is, like, all of it, I think, pretty much, um, in terms of if there actually were, like, sexual or, like, relationships between these women that part is kind of up to historical interpretation and much debated. But yeah, so there's just like a lot in this movie to dissect and to delve into. It's almost a little difficult. Well, yeah, it's like, where do we start? I know because, you know, as you know, I'm going to have a lot to say. <laughs> I know exactly where to start. Where do we start? I don't actually know. I was, I'm just thinking about the rabbits and I'm also thinking about, I think one of the best exchanges, or at least like line readings of the whole film, which is like, badger where she's like you look like a badger she's like (laughs) i guess now thinking of thinking you know thinking about sex in the movie it's very much in the words of janelle monet everything is sex except sex which is power yeah and i think that's really i think that's really the epitome of the end scene boom but i but i mean truly like that i mean sex as a means of power and control and security and then 
that kind of being flipped on its head at the end, you know. One quote that I read was just that, uh, I, I don't remember if this was Olivia Coleman talking about Queen Anne or, or the director, but somebody made a statement in something I read where they basically said, like, Queen Anne doesn't know if anybody really loves her. Mm-hmm. And I love how, even though I, I didn't think that thought when I watched the movie, saying, like, hearing that afterwards, I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, everything about her, what she does, how she acts completely like it underlines that statement so effectively just extremely insecure attachment right it's like validation security Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i was reading deborah davis talk about it a bit because she was like i said the original author of the the screenplay who wrote it like 20 years before and had like i think even gone to film school to write or gone to school to like learn script writing to write this script which is like very interesting to me And I was reading a bit about her intention, because obviously this script has changed over the years, but I was reading kind of like what she was going for in the film. And just to be clear, the the gay aspects of the film existed in her original script, from what I understand from reading about it, like that came from her that wasn't added by the director and other writer, which is part of why it was so hard to sell before i think she even mentioned that when she saw the hours it was like the first time she felt like oh this is a script maybe i can sell because it's a script specifically about women in power and like i'm trying to find the part where she talks about it i feel i guess i don't want to lose your train of thought but i guess thinking about if it was made in a different time like i feel if it was made like truly 20 years or so ago if it was able to receive funding and all of that, the marketing would have been so different. It would have been like, it's a historical drama. Mm-hmm. It would have been so crass. Like, there are titties. Yeah, exactly. There's one boob in here. I know. It would have been very, like, trashy and vapid. Or the opposite. It'd be, like, very staunch and, like, very... I do know that she was, like, the original one was a bit more historically accurate. So it could have... It either would have been, like, very mm-hmm. stuffy or very gaudy. I agree. And I also just think it like in the hands of a different director, like this would have looked unrecognizable, mm-hmm. you know, because it's it brings like he has such a specific energy and such a specific like pacing and tone, like the music and sound design and, and the fisheye lens and the fisheye. It's very disorienting in a lot of it. it right. It's so fun. I, I love I love a fisheye lens. It. It really, it really. I will say I have seen this film a lot of times. Oh, you have. I, I don't think. I don't think I'm lying when at, I think I've seen it like seven or eight times. Oh, oh wow. my God. I came into this with an and expert. I watched it for the first time. <laughs> so we're all at different levels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I I do really like the film, but I will say I haven't seen it that many times strictly because I loved it. I will say a few, the first few times I watched it because I wanted to understand it more. Mm-hmm. And a slew of the other times were... I think I've only watched it like twice because I wanted to rewatch. The other times were because I worked at a movie theater and this is all they played for like three yeah. months because it was selling so well. And then, you know, it was also during winter, so no one was really showing up. So I would just like hang out and watch the whole movie. Oh, my gosh. Nice. Yeah. But so I read a bit about her intention and what she wrote or what she said in this uh, this interview from Coswold-Homes.com was... I thought it was a perfect story about women in power. It's about the country being run by three women from a bedchamber. I love the idea that for men to gain access to the queen, the political leaders, the Tory opposition, they had to go up the backstairs via her favorites. 
It struck me as a fantastic story and something that had really not been seen before. Interesting. Okay. And she did use a lot of like primary sources and stuff. And she talked about it and she goes, she goes, the primary sources, letters, diaries, memoirs are fantastic, really explosive. I think it's generally agreed by historians that Anne's letters to Sarah are love letters. She wrote things like, I would rather live in a cottage with you than raid empress of the world. See, that's so yeah. funny that she said that because, and cottage core. I, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I spent some time trying to find sources and uh, not hard data, but just like, you know, historical sources about people talking about this subject, about, you know, their sexuality of Queen Anne specifically. And of course, a lot of what I saw was people saying, nah, they're just, they're just gal pals. You know, they just really like each other. Uh, admittedly, I, you know, I don't have access to, I mean, I had to use Google Scholar and a lot of my results were books from the sixties. <laughs> so I wasn't able to get the kind of in-depth research that I wanted to, but this is a perfect segue. This quote in particular it stuck out in my mind. This is allegedly from one of the letters uh, that Sarah wrote to, uh, or sorry, Anne wrote to Sarah. Uh, and full disclosure, like I said, I it was hard for me to find any like concrete sources. I, I saw this quoted in a few articles, but I couldn't find a source. So this might not be entirely accurate, but the point I'm going to make using the quote is still valid, I promise. So the line is, oh, come to me as soon as you can that I may cleave myself to you. I can't go to bed without seeing you. If you knew in what condition you have made me, I am sure you would pity. And a historian, after that quote, says, uh, This kind of deeply affectionate language between same-sex friends wasn't so unusual. Sarah and Anne's relationship is typically characterized as a, quote-unquote, romantic friendship, which back then was seen as preparation for heterosexual marriage. And I sat on that sentence when sure I first did. read it. And I said, don't, you don't think this means that there's just a lot of gay women? <laughs> you think that it's all practice for men? You don't think maybe just there were more gay women than you expected there to be? Like, that was the most hilarious thing to me. That's some, like, sleepover bullshit. Like, we have to practice. I read, um, so I read an article on Jezebel um, with a queen and biographer who held kind of a belief that it was more a friendship but she did touch about that and she had some what she was kind of saying about it was um she said i think you can certainly cite other examples of women writing letters to each other nowadays when we think that we're extraordinary it's difficult to know and to a certain extent it's difficult to know how much naivety there was about lesbianism at the time so men would say these women they're writing to each other but of course that's just the silly thing women do it is possible that, in fact, lesbian relationships were going on under the noses of men and they just failed to realize it because they thought, well, women can't do without us. But alternatively, it was just as it was just a completely accepted convention that women, without any embarrassment or compromising themselves, could write things that nowadays we wouldn't really expect people to do. And that one shouldn't look more deeply into the whole thing and draw inferences that aren't really warranted. And then she kind of goes on to say uh, it was sort of extraordinary, like talk about homosexuality or like being a lesbian or gay. Uh, she goes, homosexuality, there was an awareness of that, but on the whole, people don't seem to realize or been aware of the existence of lesbians. But I think you can say that insofar as there were any possible awareness of it, people would have disapproved of it strongly, but it was just like an outrageous concept. So when it, Sarah accuses Queen Anne of having an affair with Abigail Masham, like in real life, I mean, they're having a sexual relationship. Anne is sort of saying, oh, I don't even understand what you're saying. The realization then comes to her, and I think it's this thing that she cannot forgive. When Sarah's pressing her, uh, asking what she has done wrong, the specific offense that Anne mentions 
I think this is like in her letters and diaries or whatever, is that she says to Sarah, you said I had such an intimacy with Masham. Again, you could perhaps make a case to say that Anne was so outraged because she had a guilty conscience, in a sense, was terrified of Sarah making public this relationship. But my own view, which is perhaps naive, is that Anne was just appalled that Sarah would accuse her of such a thing. That Sarah does accuse Anne of lesbianism. Some people might say, well, well, Sarah knew her all her life and surely she would know. But I don't actually see the force of that argument is what this person says. Which is like interesting because it's kind of like the light version of what you were saying. Like she's like, yeah, I mean, it's totally possible they were just gay and they're way more gay people. But like, I don't know if we can infer that here or not. And I'm like, okay. Okay, but I feel like it, like everyone's kind of like tiptoeing around it in a way that seems very strange to me. Like Exactly. Yeah, also sorry for people who are hearing me read these like excessively long quotes on a podcast. Like sorry, I'm just reading other people saying shit, but it's just like really fascinating to me to hear these like historians talk about the reality. Like I'm just re- keep getting clips of these actual letters and like being like I don't understand the kind of interpretation that Anne wasn't gay or interested in women or that that would be like uh, unreasonable with her this and Sarah in real life is like accusing her of it in private letters it seems a little strange and like it reminds me of kind of like being at sleepovers as a kid and like kind of like hooking up with your friends and then your friend who's like not either like not gay or doesn't want to admit that they might be a little gay being like no you're just fucking gay like i'm not gay like oh you're you're gay that's bad somehow even though i was literally doing stuff with you last night that's kind of the vibe i get from sarah being like well you're gay so fuck oh, you yeah. and it's like yeah bitch you were gay with me like <laughs> right exactly and i remember reading one source that said well you know Anne was a pretty staunch christian so there's no way she would you know be a lesbian and it's like oh you, oh, you yeah, don't think any have never been gay. right you don't think that's ever happened before so what i wanted to say specifically about uh you know interpreting uh, you know, whatever sort of historical text that you have at your disposal. Um, a lot of literature that I read uh, and, you know, casual think pieces and blogs uh, around Queen Anne, they always like posit the question, was she in a lesbian relationship specifically? It's always lesbian. Lesbianism. Yes. <laughs> and that kind of language always, I mean, uh, not even in this specific context, it's reductive to me. Um, and that's true for all three of the women involved here. I do enjoy that you're never, I mean, nobody outright says like, you know, I'm a lesbian, I'm bisexual, I'm this or that. It Because it, it isn't necessarily relevant to the plot. These are just women and they're doing these actions. <laughs> and, you know, there seems to be varying degrees of enjoyment between the three of them. But mm-hmm. uh, that struggle of trying to parse a sexuality, it, it is like a double-edged sword of, well, I mean, I want... I would like to know, hey, was she gay? Because me as a gay person, I would find comfort in that. Anybody would. But then the other side of it is like, this is a woman's personal life. She probably didn't want people to talk about this. And, you know, I I want to respect that in a way. But, you know, like I said, it's just such a double-edged sword to, to try to reconcile both of those desires as a gay person when we talk about a gay person in history or a potentially gay person in history. And one of my favorite arguments that I have seen in history classes and even outside of it, I'm sure both of you have seen this. And I saw this particularly in my classics classes. 
uh, is the one that goes, uh, well, they wouldn't have seen the man-on-man sex that they were having 4,000 years ago, gay, so I would hesitate to label these men as gay. Mm. And it's like, yeah, okay, sure, maybe 4,000 years ago, those two poor farmers, Philip and Greg, didn't have their gay sex and then turn to each other and say, like, wow, we're gay. Like, the societal norms and cultural expectations were completely different. They have, they're eternally changing, obviously. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about the sexualities of historical figures, we're not talking about that. Like, Queen Anne may not have thought of herself as a lesbian. She obviously had some sort of love for another woman. Who knows for sure what it was. But... It is meaningful, rather, it makes me upset when people try to to try to couch it and say, well, she wouldn't have seen herself as blank, so we shouldn't put that label on her. It's like, that's not the point. The point here is, I am somebody who has loved women. I'm seeing somebody in history who loves women, and that means the world, you know, to, to see somebody 400 years ago who has, who is the same, you know, has the same love and experiences i do and straight people really take that take it for granted i like that you keep saying it's 400 years ago <laughs> <laughs> i mean god is it 1600s right i think it's the 18 no it's 1700s right it's like seven i think her yeah, reign so was like the, the it's like 1700 it the 18th century okay yeah well i got I mean, you know, I was never good at math. That's why I was a history student. <laughs> it just made me laugh. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, no, I... And another thing about that, too, is it kind of... I feel like a lot of times it comes back to, like, well, like, there's no proof that these two were, like, in love and about, like, any two women. It's like, but they were very romantic and intimate with each other. And I'm like, well, what do you classify as in love, then? Or, yeah, like, isn't that love, enough? It's like, what, you mean, like, they're not fucking, so they can't be in love with each other? Like... Or like exactly. you're like you're like no they went they were like in love like in a platonic non gay way and kind of acting like you can't like be in love with someone and not like be having sex with them or else it doesn't count like exactly. which is another kind of aspect of that either way like it's pretty obvious and I think from what I was reading at least about like in the cl- the clips the sections I read of like quoted sections of Queen Anne's like diaries and letters. She was dependent on Sarah and absolutely obsessively needed her and had, like, a lot of, like, attachment. And, like, I've had relationships like that with other, like, with women that were not, like, I'm not going to name names here, but, like, Ken, I feel like the relationship with the, that I had with our mutual prior friend was kind of in some ways like that. Like, we were very, like, we talked about having a house together and shit, but, like, we weren't. Mm Mm-hmm sexual but that doesn't mean we didn't like have but where would you classify like that relationship so like in some ends i do get that because like that was like a very charged relationship that wasn't romantic but let's also not discount it's one of those things where it's like well i can't that gets complicated because like well yeah you can have really intense charged relationships and they don't have to be romantic like i'm sure if people read canonized messages people might think we were literally in love like Chris, I was literally, I was gonna bring that up as a point. <laughs> like, Chris, for a while, legitimately thought I had, like, strong, like, sexual or romantic feelings for Sahana because I post on all of her selfies, like, oh my god, I love you, like, you're so hot, like, I can't stand it, like, I'm gonna die, and whatever, and I'm like, no, like, I, 
we're just gay. I mean, that's just kind of how it is. Yeah, we just we're gay friends. Like, well, Hannah's not gay, but it's like, no, I'm just gay, and I love all my friends in a gay way. I can't like even if they're platonic, <laughs> but you know, like, I mean. So it's kind of complicated because it's like, yeah, I understand those relationships can exist and it's not always sexual, but it's also like, I don't know, I still like, it's so dumb to say my friendships are gay, but like my friendships are gay. Gay friendship just hits <laughs> different, I, it's true. I think another thing is that, yes, in the text, but also I guess from the sources, like this was something that they didn't want to get out. Like they knew it was queer. I, yes, we're defining it by modern definitions but i guess even at the time it was something not to be spoken of Mm -hmm. and not just because oh sexual stuff it's like oh no we shouldn't specifically talk like we can't let this get out like they knew it was queer that's a great point because like you know if somebody's saying oh well it's just a romantic friendship if they're gonna dismiss it as that well why are they also why do they also feel the need to hide it like that means that it meant something which like yes like in the context of everything like sex was something that like you're not flaunting about but specifically this there is a level of like discretion that is like yo we gay but like we not gay you know Mm -hmm. yeah exactly i'm gonna toss these gay letters in the fire you know for no reason no reason at all right 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 I want to um, intersect all of this deep um, conversation with a quick uh, piece of trivia about Nicholas Holt. Oh, please. According to make of, I'm reading from IMDb because I, sorry. That's fine. But <laughs> <laughs> according to makeup designer Nadia Stacy, Nicholas Holt named all of his wigs. His main wig was Barbara, or my frequently referred to as Babs. Oh my God. The orange wig he wears uh, is Lulu. Um, another is named Hattie and they also he they were like very strategic about where he placed all of his beauty marks I guess on another rewatch it'd be interesting to see how they moved based on the situation oh I love that that's fascinating what an adorable little man oh my god I say little he's probably like six feet tall but <laughs> this is actually this is the second Nicholas Holt movie we've discussed on here I was going to bring that up. I've never seen the movie A Single Man, but I heard you talk about it in that episode that you did. So he's in the canon now. Yeah. He's in gay There's canon. at least two actors, coincidentally, also from A Single Man, because we watched Mamma Mia, which that episode's actually going to come out after this one, but we watched Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. And spoiler alert, that's an episode that's going to come out soon. And Nicholas, yeah, Colin Firth was in both of those. So. Oh, he was? Yeah, we're gonna we should keep a tally about like the most gay film actor in ours. Oh yeah. A body a body count, but for being gay in movies. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be <laughs> God. <laughs> or being in gay movies because No, Colin first Being in gay's movie. Like, <laughs> being in each other. Colin first character's gay in Mamma Mia as well, right? Oh, he is? I'm just taking Colin Firth. Every character you, he plays is gay. Like, I feel like you can make the argument that every character he plays is gay based on how, his The Kingsman style. definitely I was just about to gay. say. Because that's basically his... Did you see that umbrella? He's definitely a, a, an older bachelor. That yes. movie, his character in that movie is extremely similar to his character in A Single Man. Like... Really? Yeah. Because he is a single yeah, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's just one man. I think that's a good place to start. <laughs> in this movie, he is also single. <laughs> um... One thing that I kept kind of asking myself while watching the movie was how does Rachel Weiss's character actually feel about Queen Anne? 
Yes. And I feel like that's one thing I really liked about these characters. Like I was reading the director talk about them a bit and being like how it was important that they were like messy and that your feelings about them would change as they went on because they're complicated people and you can't just like peg them in one hole. Like, like Abigail switch, <laughs> like, oh, you can't just peg them in one <laughs> hole. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's an amazing thing that I said. Uh, I'm gonna be thinking about that all night. Anyway. Hey, would, you got merch? Would peg oh, any sorry. of these women in their holes. Um, I shouldn't say that about them. I'm sorry I said that about you three, but I probably won't edit it out, but I'm sorry. <laughs> be bold. <laughs> I mean, they listen to this, so I'm so sorry they're gonna. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Olivia Coleman, you can call me if you want Olivia to Holman. apologize Olivia to Olivia Coleman, if you want to <laughs> get pegged by any of us, let us know. <laughs> God, imagine like meeting Olivia, like you are like at the airport and you meet Olivia Coleman and like she doesn't know this exists, but like you know and you have to look her in the eye after that. Olivia Coleman, I love your work. No, she doesn't know it exists and she says, she says, oh, you're the one who wants to peg me. <laughs> I feel like just unanimously she can assume everyone wants to peg me. I agree. That's fair. That's real. Okay, that's really real. We're not the first people to say they want Olivia Coleman to pay. No, she's gorgeous. Okay, you guys have to watch The Lobster. She's she's great in that as well. Oh, she is in that. Oh yeah, one? um, Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weisz are both in The Lobster, oh. playing lead leadish roles. Yeah. Um. So Yorgos definitely loves them. Yeah, I think she's in another one of his too but i could be wrong anyway i thought about that a lot because like in some ways it's like because obviously she's using her influence and controlling her but like you could you we've all had controlling manipulative friends who think they like have a right to power over our lives and i also was reading a bit about the actual history which again i know he wasn't concerned with this but the original screenwriter was so like i i still think it's important to kind of suss out some of that and like thinking about some of the characters even though i know they really developed their own kind of thing but i read a bit about how sarah in real life was always very controlling and always felt like she had a right to the power that Anne had and always felt like she was that Anne would always just kind of listen to her but then she was like very upset to find that it was actually her husband you know, Marlboro Mark Gaddis and her friend, I forget his fucking name, Godolphin or whatever. Is that his name? Yeah, sure. That sounds right. That sounds medieval. Yeah, whatever. That guy, they were the ones who got power more than her. And so like she really kind of hold it over. And you can even see like her kind of like things she did afterwards, like her very petty, like releasing information about Queen Anne afterwards in real life as kind of like a reaction. To that. But that just seems like a very taut, like a very toxic relationship that I think it could be made that Sarah did care about her, even if she did later on say she was boring and, you know, she was bored of her and, like, she was stupid. And, but, like, yeah, that's how manipulative people act when they are removed from power in, like, people's lives. So I think, I think it's, I think it's just so complex and, like, it's hard to, like, really, because, yeah, I guess by modern context, it's manipulative, but I feel like everything in this film, because of just the context and setting in like the 18th century like a lot of everything that's happening is for like security and stability and everything's just like to maintain not so much maintaining power but maintaining security and that's like abigail's whole arc mm -hmm. of like i need to be secure and safe and provided for mm -hmm. and so that's 
pretty that is abigail's entire arc and the same with sarah's like yes i do believe there's love there and she truly does and she says it in the film that like she shows love because she is honest and she like will not lie to queen anne mm-hmm. and then i loved that bit her lashing out is that oof, that got me and then the lashing out is as like okay these are like my last grasps at the security and stability like it's it's purely desperation and yes like you know maybe revenge maybe like you know maybe it's it's that but i think it, a lot of it is just like okay i can't be like you out someone i you know like outing someone to perfect you know to uh protect yourself mm-hmm. yeah it's like a reflex be like look at them not me like mm-hmm. deflecting mm-hmm. well yeah and there's a lot yeah, to, back to the like... sleepover thing i was saying earlier yeah uh one thing i thought about and i thought about this both times i saw the movie when they when you first see them kiss i i always read too much into body language i'm an expert at that but i noticed and you know again maybe projection maybe overthinking but uh when sarah sat in Anne's lap in the wheelchair after she like pushed her down the hall and which is like a really cute scene Mm -hmm. um she sits on her lap and then they kiss and to me it seemed like sarah was kind of more straight-backed kind of pulling back a little bit and was the one more leaning into the kiss It, it seemed to me like sarah for lack of a better term wasn't feeling it as much as Anne was mm-hmm. um and but aside from that that is that's kind of like the only thing that i can point to to be like well you know maybe sarah didn't wasn't as into Anne as Anne was into her which sounds like high school girl politics but yeah i mean yeah now now thinking about really reading into it i think yes but also they're like I will say they're both pretty drunk, but Anne is like kind of, I don't know, is she like wasted? But also I think, um. Are they supposed to be drunk in that scene? I genuinely don't remember. Because they left the, they left the ball, right? Oh, that's or right. Whatever. Yeah, they're all toasty. Yeah, okay. Also, let's talk about the, I don't know if I, I want to say the dancing was very anachronistic, but, or I don't know if they really threw down those moves, but that was such a great sequence. It was just very fun. Rachel Weisz and Nicholas Holt just like. But another thing, because of like their uh, relationship and kind of their their chemistry, like clearly we come in on this, like they've been had this relationship their whole lives. You know, they're that old couple, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote, like. And they even play that old couple, like when they do like the Mrs. Morley, like. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's so cute. And yeah, and even like the familiarity in their kind of violent moments, <laughs> like there's that one part where like Rachel Weisz like grab, oh my god, in that outfit, like oh my god, grabs, oh my- yeah, when she grabs her throat, oh, oh yeah, she uh-huh. grabs her by the throat and she's like, you're gonna do that, like just like fucking toss the shit out of Are her. Are you scared? Yeah. Oh my god. I'm like, no, she wants to fuck her here. Like that is real. <laughs> like no, but for real though, yes. like. Those moments are so charged. Like, they have such a charged relationship. And, like, yes, you can argue, and I think rightfully, that, like, part of that is about kind of, like, power grabs. And it is kind of, like, vying for power or trying to use your sway. But, like, we do that in relationships all the time. Like, for much lesser scale Mm -hmm. things. You know, we don't all, we're not all arguing about war. But, like, it could be about something significantly smaller and it would... It's the same kind of actions, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So. One thing that was really significant to me was, and this is how he starts the movie, which makes it, you know, 
really, really significant to me is he starts the movie on them having a, just a really nice, sweet conversation. You know, Anne is being insecure and basically being like, how did my speech go? And Sarah is being very sweet, very reassuring. She said, no, you did great. You know, you didn't have a lisp. But Anne was like, oh, good. I thought I did. It's just a very, like, sweet, tender moment between two people who seem to, like, genuinely care about each other. Mm-hmm. And that... Two gal pals. Yeah, just two gal pals, you know? It was, And that... I just... I love that. I love a, a nice, tender moment between women. And the way... The fact that they open the movie with that scene, I just... I thought that was very effective. And it made me believe, like, yeah, they do really care about each other. Who knows in right, what way specifically, but they do. You see kind of all shades of the relationship where exactly. obviously with Abigail, you only see her on that like more sexual favorite side. But um, yeah, it is really nice to see Sarah and Anne's like full. Well, I think they uh, they have an intimacy that Abigail and Queen Anne never have, you know, like because Abigail, because yeah, yeah. I mean, there is the truth to her being. Well, I don't know if there's a truth to her saying like, I'll never I never lie to you. Like, I'm always honest because like she's not like she does lie to her. She hides things from her like she hides what really happens to her face for what like or how would it really happen there or she hides like the people's real opinion of the war and she hides lots mm-hmm. of things from her but she is honest with her in a but out of love uh, out of <laughs> uh out of something but but you know but she is honest with her though in ways that abigail never is like she is and she's mad at her she's honestly mad at her like when she's trying to get something out of her she's not that she's not really trying to be sly she'll just tell her what to do and queen anne says to her like you know at one point she goes abigail never wants anything from me and then she's like yeah she fucking does she just isn't straight up with you about it like why do you think she has fucking like all this money and power now because she got it out of you and she's just being sneaky about it, which is true. And, you know, so Abigail is always playing a role with with Queen Anne. Like, I do, I'm sure she yes. genuinely enjoys some of it, but, like, she's, no matter what, it's calculated and always a role. Whereas, even though many things that Sarah does are calculated in a way, it's not that is not the only aspect to their relationship they do have an intimacy they have that old friendship they also aren't like like if you in looking at intention everything sarah all of sarah's things even if she is trying to get something none at the detriment of anne whereas abigail's is very like i need to be okay and that's kind of in terms of the fallout i guess if anne or anyone else is kind of falls to the wayside or based on a decision that you know isn't doesn't really matter as long as abigail's okay that's a great point like at least that's what's been shown like you know in the film yeah sarah seems to in all of her decisions like she still has Anne in her mind like she and it's it's pretty clear she wants her around not just to see like to leech off of her but because she likes her right and also like it wasn't just to like take advantage of Anne, like not saying that Anne is dumb, but she's painted in the film was like, she doesn't know what she's doing. And so Sarah's like, okay, well let me like, just trust me. And we got it. And yes, like her own intentions and like thoughts are thrown into that. But like, just cause like Anne couldn't, is none the wise. Yeah. And that's also very different from the perspective of people who've known each other since childhood than someone who's coming mm-hmm. in with that intention. Like they grew up with each other. They grew up with that kind of relationship, but you know, like, 
those dynamics developed over time. It wasn't like, and from what I can understand, she was like that well before Anne was ever queen. And she was not like a likely queen. So like, you know, it was a relationship that wasn't, it, you know, it was always, I'm sh- being, I'm sure power always came into it because how could it not because they of how like different societal roles could be back then. But like, it wasn't exclusively about, I mean, it was more, I think about, trying to do what she thought was right and making sure that happened than it was about like, what can I get out of this person? Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas Abigail saw her more as like a a safety net, like her, her a chance. I mean, I think the one part, one part we haven't talked about, which I think is kind of like an interesting scene is the scene where she, where Abigail is like after she just got married and then she's like then her like new husband is like trying to like sleep with her and she's but she's so focused on what's going to happen next and like the impending threat that Sarah coming back is and like she's just talking out loud like to herself kind of at him about how she feels like her whole life has been a maze or something i don't remember what she says but basically like that every time she thinks she's gonna find a way out like she's stuck right back in it and she's jerking him off the whole time we don't see it exactly it's 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 angled in a way where she is in front we're focused really on her very like thoughtful intent face but we can like see in the background that she's like jerking him off (laughs) Yeah, and he's just, yeah, very softly moaning in the background, which I'm sure that could be a metaphor for how she, you know, sex is always a means to an end for her, you know, always in the background, not the point of the thing. Uh, But it's also just kind of funny. (laughs) Like, it's also just kind of funny. She's jerking this guy off and talking out loud about her evil master plans as she's just jerking her off. She's like Lady Macbeth, practically, in that scene. Like, but if Lady Macbeth jerked Macbeth off during it, like it was just <laughs> fascinating. But I think, like again, it goes back to how just utterly fascinating the sexual politics of this movie are. Because, like, I mean, she talks so f- kind of she talks early on so much, like in these kind of offhand almost conversations with Sarah, where she's you know one about the man her father like better off to. But then she also was like, oh, the worst were, like, the rapes, like, she mentions offhand at one point, like, implying that she had just been consistently sexually assaulted before, you know, when she was impoverished. And it even shows, like, on her way to the castle, like, this man was, like, jerking off and staring at her and then, like, pushed her ass, like, out of the carriage and, like, into the mud. And then... She lifts herself up from that, gets a job, rises through the rank, like uses sex and not just sex, but uses sex partially to like both with Masham and with Queen Anne to like rise through the ranks only to be shoved back down on the ground again and put back into another submissive position. And it's just the sexual politics of all of that is just very fascinating to me. And you can't just say it's about, like, womanhood versus being a woman versus being a man or whatever, because, I mean, at the end, it's with with another woman, like, you know, so it's, Mm -hmm. it's more complicated of a story than I think we sometimes get with that in it being a multi-gendered, uh, multi-gendered relationships that we see this, like, kind of alteration between domination and submission and in... It's just very fascinating to me. 
Well, yeah, and the point, like you said, literally the introduction to her as a character is this dude is jerking off in front of her, and she gets her ass, she gets pushed by her ass down into shit mud. Like, that. that is how we are introduced <laughs> to her as a character. <laughs> like, it, it, it is a beautiful setup for basically what her character, ha- you know, is, has gone through, and is going to do, or going to try to do, at least. Mm. Yeah, it is... Very, very interesting. The one last kind of thing I wanted to talk about before we uh, end, I guess I do still want to go back to talking about the ending for for a minute because it's very odd. When I Googled the favorite, there was like the second Google result was the favorite ending and then related searches. Why did the favorite end that way? What did the ending mean? I, I really, I didn't realize that this was like a a contentious ending i thought it was weird i thought it was neat but i didn't understand that people had like you know they had trouble wrapping their heads around it i guess i absolutely had a hard time wrapping my head around it and i read like 20 articles about it all of which had very interesting perspectives yeah all of the opinions are like very different but i feel like some of them aren't even like not compatible with each other like some of them are just like it's it's very yeah the interpretations of like the bunnies and what that represents in particular because they're like her miscarried children. Well, see, and that's why I was surprised. I didn't think there would be that many interpretations because I took it kind of straightforwardly. <laughs> that's just me. Well, what do you mean by that? I'm just straightforward in the sense of like, it is, I don't even really know how to describe it because I was just like, well, this is a weird ending. And this, this speaks volumes about my ability to interpret metaphor. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's a weird ending. The, the, like uh, the visual repetition of like the rabbits, which I was very disheartened to learn wasn't actually a real thing. I know, but <laughs> that's such a bummer. That's such a nice little thing. Unfortunately, but, the uh, lost children were real, but the bunnies were not. Yeah, right. Uh, but just the fact that everything is blurring, I took that to be from sort of Abigail's perspective of it's like a weirdly reflective, depressing moment for her, uh, and she is just reflecting on loss like what she has gained and what she has lost uh those rabbits obviously their whole point there is to represent loss and that's really what i chalked it up to i'm very interested to see like to hear all the different perspectives that there were yeah i think definitely thinking about power thinking about power struggles thinking about like you know going back to this whole film especially through costume as like a a game of chess like speaking of power and control abigail you know, being compared to the bunnies who are her babies, like seeing that kind of form of innocent, like defenseless, like have no true agency. And so Abigail thinking she has this agency and then, you know, and at the very end being like, actually, no, like showing like these are the roles we're playing. I am much more powerful than you. You are my servant. Like, it it shows that she hasn't gained anything. But not only that, but also from Anne's perspective, because they both look equally, like, distraught and hurt, and I, mm-hmm. and, like, condemned, you know? I feel like they both look condemned at the end of the movie. And so I think, Aaron, That's like, a good word. what you're saying, from Abigail's perspective, I really agree with, but I, what that kind of just made me think about is also from Anne's perspective, like, these bunnies represent her loss and like the love that she so wanted in her life and that she Mm -hmm. was 
that was so often taken away from her and kind of going back to the idea that we mentioned earlier of like Anne's not sure if anyone's really loved her like to finally have this moment where she sees Abigail for who she truly is or I don't want to say who she truly is I want to say who she has become because I truly do think Mm -hmm. that early in the film Abigail would never ever ever have dreamed about stepping on a bunny like i don't think that would mm-hmm. exist in her right yeah it was definitely, i think yeah. she was sweet early on and the stress and the the desire not for power so much as security i would say i mean which com- comes with power in her case but you know that led her into this kind of like cruel self that she becomes but i think at for Anne, it's like realizing who she truly is and that she doesn't love her and that she lost the other person too who she thought she loved and like all of the lost love in her life like the bunnies kind of speak to that from her end of like this her being kind of condemned to live in this world where like she is not surrounded by like love or she's surrounded by only like bad uh memories and uh and distrust i feel like yeah just a lot of despair all around, really. Kind of a bummer. You know, I went into this thinking it was going to be gay, fun sex times, and then I end it with just a real bummer. Yeah, because it was advertised very much as something more kind of like lively and rompy. A fun romp, yeah. Violent, because I remember having a, like the shooting stuff. Like I, But it is still really funny. It just ends in a very dark place but i think it ends kind of being like yes this was funny yes you had like a good time with this but also we're saying something here yeah exactly (laughs) but thank you so much ken for coming on the show yes it was my pleasure thank you so much for having me like i said first podcast ever and i'm glad it was this one yeah where can we find i hope it oh go ahead aaron I was just going to make a bad no, joke. No, make the bad joke. I want No, no, make it. the bad joke. Come on. Well, I hope this podcast experience remains your favorite for a while. <laughs> oh, it absolutely will. Preferably favorite with you. Fave our rate. Fave Because it's our favorite. Well, you yeah. know what, Aaron? It wasn't going to be, but now it is. Secured. Oh, wow. Favorite spot secured. <laughs> so, uh, Ken, where can we find you on the internet? If you want to share. Uh, you can find me one place and one place only. That is Twitter.com, my favorite hell site. You can find me at I saw Ken, I-S-A-W-K-E-N. And like I said, nowhere else. That's the only place I exist anymore. Yeah. No more DeviantArt? No. Oh, God. No, I found that and I deleted it a couple years ago. I knew you had that. to have had one. <laughs> you got me, babe. Aaron, where can we find you on the internet? Also, on Twitter.com, um, you can find me at Aaron with an underscore A. And then you can find this, well, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Felix, uh, at Epsilina, that's at E-P-S-I-L-I-N-A. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Queers on Film. We do have a Patreon if you would like to help support the show because we do pay for movies and uh uh, other things that go into podcasting uh we would really appreciate any support we have some fun stuff planned like we're gonna uh have a aaron oscar and i will be watching yuri on ice and doing a mini pod on that <laughs> so why wouldn't you want that if you want to be on the podcast you can hit us up on twitter or email us at queers on film pod at gmail.com <gasps> uh, 
Okay, we have to call the mini series Queers on Ice. Oh my god. Oh shit. Of course. You got it. Okay, anyways, keep going. Um, <laughs> our mu- our theme music is by Haley McNichol. You can find uh them on Twitter at Bombastic Dream Pussy with all of the vowels removed. Um and you can find uh their bands Bandcamp at bombasticdreampussy.bandcamp.com. It's fucking or on Spotify or wherever. They fucking rule. Listen to them. They're so good. Our icons made by our very own Aaron, who's right here. Thanks for listening. See you next time when maybe you'll hear us talk about Mamma Mia. Here we go again.